is in Parta, Nebraska native. She also spent some of her um, teenage years in Illinois, but came back here to get her undergrad degree at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Her undergraduate degree was a um, double major in biology and geology, plus a minor in mathematics. She then decided to stay at UNL to get her graduate degree, so she received a PhD here in geosciences in 2009. And that PhD involved looking at lake responses to climate, but it was really a pretty multifaceted PhD study in that it included as, as its centerpiece using the sediments of lakes to reconstruct climate variation in the northern Rocky Mountain region. So she looked at the sediments from four different lakes and looked at regional patterns in this mountainous region of climate variation over the last few thousand years. But her PhD also included several modeling studies that were quite diverse. One was sort of a global um, synopsis looking at how lakes respond to changes in um, precipitation minus evaporation. So looking at overall global sensitivity in different regions. And then she also did a very different modeling study which looked at how thermal structure in lakes influenced um, biological communities. And so after, actually I think before she actually finished her PhD, she got her job with the Department of Natural Resources here in um, Nebraska. And I think it was in part on the strength and the diversity of her training that included hydrology, um, biology, geology, and also these mathematical approaches that um, made her attractive to DNR. So she's been at the DNR since, I think, 2009. She was first an integrated water management specialist focusing on the Niobrara River. More recently, she's been, um, become a coordinator in which she coordinates natural resource districts with um, the work of the DNR in water management. So today, she's going to give us an overview on her research and the research of the DNR on the Niobrara River. Um, yes, I just want to thank you guys for having me here to talk to you day, today um, about one of the projects that the department is currently working on um, in the Niobrara Basin. So to give you a short overview of what I'm going to be discussing today, first off, I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of the department because not everyone's familiar with who the department is and some of the functions. Then I'm going to go through the model purpose because we really focus on the fact that the purpose and the reasons for building these tools really drive how we build them, how we build them, and then how we ultimately use them. Then I'll go through the modeling approach because it is slightly unique in order to capture um, the different frameworks that we have to work within and manage within in the state of Nebraska. And then I'll actually go into discussing in a little more detail the actual models that we're using, how we use them, how we integrate them. And then from there, um, by setting up that context of how we put these together, go into a little bit of how we're including climate variability into the study. So we have management options today, but starting to look at how might they differ or be beneficial or not as beneficial as we thought if our range of climate variabil variability would change in the future. And then the part that uh, many of the students here might be most interested to know about are some of the internship and assistantship opportunities that are available through the department. So to start off, who's the Department of Natural Resources? We are a state agency under the direction of the governor that really focuses mainly on water resources. The department is really tasked with a large variety of authorities, including things such as 
floodplain mapping and management, bridge and dam safety and inspections, all the way to surface water stream gauging, because um, the USGS does a lot of the stream gauges in the state, but the department also does stream gauging as well, and surface water administration, permitting, and then we have a division called integrated water management, which is the division that I'm in. So what does integrated water management mean? So back in 2004, the Nebraska legislature passed a bill, LB 962, which legally recognized the interconnected nature between surface and groundwaters in Nebraska. Now, technically, that connection had always been there, but that was the first time the state legally recognized that connection. Now, that was important because we have two different regulatory structures in Nebraska for managing water. Uh, the, f the one that the department does is the Surface Water Administration. Now, that's done under a prior appropriation system, which is commonly referred to as first in time, first in right. And so basically what that means is someone who has an older application has right to use water and fulfill their need before someone with a younger date. Now, the way in which groundwater is managed is quite different. That's under a correlative rights system, which means it's share and share alike. And those are managed by 23 local entities known as natural resource districts. And so what LB 962 really did is it laid out the statutory framework for these entities to come together and develop plans for which we can start to manage the resource as it really is, which is a single resource. So we can develop our studies, our controls, our monitoring programs, and really work together on that. So that's really um, what integrated water management does. And so um, I'll go through this in more detail later, but just um, to start off is that Integrated water management is a combination of the planning, the policy, and the science and technical. So we're always bringing together all of these components on any study that we do. So at the end, I'll kind of tie in how this study actually fits within our planning and statutory framework. Um, additionally, the Niobrara is not the only place that the department is doing studies, like the one I'm gonna describe today. Each color on the map is a different study area that the department is currently engaged in or just beginning. So really we're developing a statewide assessment of our water resources. All right, so after that uh, lengthy context piece, finally get into the Niagara River Basin study. So the purpose. So the purpose really drives everything with the study. What is it that we want to do and really what we want to do is be able to model the hydrologic connections between the surface water and groundwater and the effects that management options on one would have on the other. And so by doing that, we can develop tools that are more useful for water managers. So in order to achieve this ultimate purpose, we need to focus on some more specific goals for this modeling study. And again, it's developing additional sets of tools that might even include things such as educational tools to really engage the public about what we're doing. Um, IMP, Integrated Management Plans, it's something that the Integrated Water Management Division works on and develops jointly with the NRDs to really get that interaction between the surface and groundwater and really manage the system as one. 
So these modeling studies provide a lot of the foundational information that these management plans contain. And ultimately, what we want to do is optimize the water supply. So what I mean by that is obviously we can't create more water, but we can retime it, we can store it, we can move it. So really those are the types of things we're looking to do. And so to reach these goals, there's some more specific steps that we need to take. And one of the first things we need to do is characterize the water supply. Now I know this sounds like a really basic piece of information that should be readily apparent, but it's not. It actually takes a lot of data inventory, some modeling, to really get at what water is available, where, when it's available, and then um, alongside with that, also who's using the water? When are they using it? How much are they actually using um, and removing from the system? How much is returning back to the system? So it's really creating um, a foundational inventory of our water supplies and uses before we can really start to take our next modeling steps. And then once we have that with the model developed, we can really start looking for opportunities because there's not just challenges that come with water management, there are opportunities that we can take advantage of as well. There are times when we have um, excessive water more than what we can use or all needs can be met, such as 2011. And we can start to look at things such as recharge projects that we can do with that water. So the department has really um, been engaged in along uh, with the model development process, but uh, a few years ago we applied for a U.S. Bureau of Reclamation Water Smart grant, which then the Bureau provides assistance in additional model development to go along with these models. And so one portion of it was looking more at the socioeconomic impacts to different management options, not just the hydrologic, which is what the department is focusing on. And um, the other one is the variable climate, or, um, water supply or the climate scenarios. So those are the uh, roles that the Bureau of Reclamation has in this process. So now into the modeling approach. So we basically have three different types of hydrologic models that we build to help understand the system. One of the first models that we develop is an extension of the CropSim model. The CropSim model was developed here at the university as a soil water balance model. We then further extended that model to include a watershed routing component. Um, and then we use a mod flow, um, which some of you may be pretty familiar. It's a very common groundwater model in order to um, simulate the effects of various things on both the uh, groundwater levels and the contribution to stream flow from groundwater. And then we also use a model uh, platform called Stella. Stella is a very broad-based modeling platform that allows you to develop different rules. So it gives us a lot of flexibility that we wanted to be able to incorporate some of the prior appropriation and different reservoir operations that we would need in a surface water uh, model. So here's a schematic that just uh, gives a little better idea of how we use these models in concert. So I'll go in a little more detail on what goes into each of these, but the CropSim model basically takes precipitation and it starts to partition it into different buckets, evapotranspiration, infiltration, overland runoff, 
of which those are the three main things that we then look for to feed into the other two models, um, of which we can develop pumping and recharge files then from those CropSim outputs that go into the mod flow model, and we can take that overland runoff portion, and that goes into the surface water operations model. Then from there, the groundwater model and the surface water operations model also um, communicate or they share data back and forth such that the outputs from, say, the surface water operations model might provide additional recharge through, um, say, uh, uh, recharge from a surface water irrigation district that feeds into the groundwater model, and the groundwater model will produce outputs such as um, base flow contributions to stream flow. And so really that's how we see this interactive or iterative process between these different models. And that's really to get a way to incorporate all the aspects of water in the areas that we're studying. So CropSim, we use this again as our watershed modeling tool, and really it's the pumping and the recharge files that we can get from this that we're really interested in because, again, that feeds into the groundwater portion of our model. So now CropSim is not a small uh, program. It's actually extremely large. The data sets that go into it are pretty immense and it includes all different kinds of things, such as weather data from the High Plains Regional Climate Center stations. It includes soil types, it includes crop types, and it also includes uh, uh, irrigation avail availability, including if it's surface water or if it's groundwater available. And from there, that's how it's able then to um, break it into these different components. So from there, again, recharge and pumping, go and run through the groundwater model, and that's where we get our groundwater levels and our base flow contri contributions to stream flow. Oops, this one's out of play, sorry. <laughs> okay, so the Niagara River Basin study, this is a study map. If you'll notice that the upper basin portion here is in red, the lower basin portion here is in maroon. So we've broken this up into two different regions for two main purposes. One, before the water start study began, we were, had already had significant development on a project we had, were working with the Upper Niagara White District on. And so because of that, we had additional data that was available. Uh, the lower basin model, we didn't have all that data available, and it also is serving a few other purposes for us. So the upper basin model and this picture is at the Nebraska-Wyoming state line. So here's a more detailed study area map for the upper basin model. Uh, for those of you familiar with groundwater modeling, you'll notice that the model boundary is significantly larger than the surface water boundary for the basin, and that's to prevent any boundary effects um, due to the nature of the model that might have in the area of interest. So if any of those effects are present, they'll be in areas that we're not as interested in for this model. So um, I'm going to go into some of the data sets that we need just to build this. So for the CropSim 1, again, we have to build all these land use data sets, acquire all the uh, precipitation, soils data. For the groundwater model, we um, had someone go through and look at a bunch of core logs to develop all these aquifer properties, Ks, transmissivities, thicknesses. 
for that, pulled a whole bunch of observation well data to develop targets for calibration for these models. And the surface water operations model really relies heavily on stream flow measurements, our um, surface water appropriations database, and operations for the reservoir. So what do I mean when I say land use? Because not everyone uses it the same way the department does. When we say land use, we're really focusing on those agricultural aspects. So is land in production? Is it not in production? And again, is it um, have irrigation available to it? And really, um, we really tie a lot of stuff back into our land use data set. And we work with uh, the NRDs to really get some of this information because some of them, such as the Upper Niobro White, have developed what we call certified acres databases. And so what this one, or what most of them are, is actually digitized where every parcel where someone can potentially irrigate with groundwater um, are located. And some of them, such as this one, each parcel is actually tied to the well that can um, provide water to that parcel of land. Now, why this is important is because really we can tie a lot of the management options that we have available to us to the land use. And so if the NRDs want to be able to um, decide and evaluate or ask us to run the models to look at different uh, management options, a lot of it does tie back to the land use, whether or not certain areas can irrigate or not, um, and things like that. And it's also a way for us to track how many acres are either coming online, if there's no restrictions on development, where those are occurring. And also, it's really important in the model because we know then in the groundwater model where to place the pumping that's occurring. So uh, this is just one of the things that we create to show visually um, with the land use what we do. So here, um, if you notice, particularly in Box Butte County, this is the Mirage Flats, um, some of the development that is here. So again, this is just the potential for where groundwater irrigation can occur in roughly about 1960 versus 2005, where you can see in Box Butte County, there's significantly more development. I'm pointing that out as that's one of our areas of interest because they've had over 40-foot declines in that area. So it, it is an area that we focus on quite a bit in the model. So here's just a snapshot of the groundwater model. It's still in the calibration phases, so we still have some work left to do with it, but I'm just going to show you just some of the preliminary uh, results that we have from it. This is just one of our well hydrographs. So through time, how well is our measured data versus our simulated groundwater model data? Um, this is kind of one of the nicer looking ones. Uh, we look for both uh, magnitude and trends that the model can simulate both of those. Um, here are just a few additional well hydrographs see that some of these will hit better than others. We're not looking for a perfect match on every well hydrograph, but we're really trying to capture an overall consensus with the trends and the magnitude of these water levels, or magnitude of the height of the water levels. In addition to the groundwater levels, we also calibrate, calibrate to stream flow. And so this is just um, on an annual basis, the comparison of stream flow measured at a point versus what the model simulated um, should be there through the base flow contribution to the stream. 
So again, we use multiple calibration um, metrics to gauge how well our model is able to um, simulate the changes we see in the system. We also, as another way of looking at it, is spatially, we look at the drawdown. So I mentioned before there's over 40-foot drawdowns in Box Butte County. Um, this is just a blow-up of an area right here. This is roughly Box Butte County. You can see that we have significant drawdowns simulated by the model there. So these are just ways where we check the models, feel like it's realistically simulating the historical. So now to the surface water operations model. So like most uh, routing tools, uh, the water starts at the upstream portion. The model pushes it through till it hits a node. And at that node, there's a decision point um, based on water demand or some rules that water is then either routed to that other point or it's passed further down along to the next node. And so in here, we have different things such as stream gauges, Box Butte Reservoir and some of its operations will be in there. And additionally, we have groups of individual irrigators. So really, this is a demand-based system that we're modeling here. So here's just a snapshot of another portion of the model. These are individual surface water appropriators. So when someone applies for an application to divert surface water, they're not just getting a data signed with it, they're also getting an amount. And so that's how we can put together the demand of how much water people would want to take if it were available at a given time. So now I'll go into the lower basin model. Um, this one, again, it's not as developed as the upper basin model, so I'll go through it a little more quickly. So here's the lower basin study area map. So up here we have the Niobrara. Here's the Elkhorn. Here's the loops in the plat down along here. Now you may be asking why such a huge model to model for a river that's really just up here in the northern portion. Um, there's really two main purposes for this. One is that um, the groundwater basins overlap here between the Elkhorn and the Loop rivers along with the Niobrara. And the second reason is, is that the department had reasons that we needed to model this as well. So instead of building two models um, to do that, we just built one for it. So um, yes, we do realize that it's a huge model area. So again, one of the first things that we've really focused on building, and again, because the NRDs contribute to this portion of the process, is this land use component. Um, and I mentioned earlier that we didn't have the same types of data for this in this portion of the model as we did the upper portion of the model. So we had to start looking for other data sources as well, remote sensing, such as the CalMet coverage that was developed in 2005, Nas um, National Agricultural Statistics, or Wells Database. And so basically, we took every data set that was relevant out there that we could to put it together to develop, again, the potential a um, areas where irrigable land exists. So I'll go back and forth through these a couple of times because I have some more detail with them. But um, if you'll notice back in 1940, there's very limited development. Blue is surface water irrigation of these. The orange is groundwater. And you can see that there's not a lot of development through that time. 
Um, jump forward to 1960, there's some significant development, mainly along the Platte. The 80s, quite a bit along the Elkhorn, and you're starting to get some in the loops. 2000, you're really starting to fill it in, and by 2011, there's quite a bit more development. But if we really focus back to the Niobrara, um, this blue area here is a surface water irrigation district project that came online. Um, and then there's also um, more development, it might be hard to see, that occurs up here along the Niobrara and along the outskirts of that irrigation district. Um, so this here is just a map of the K values that will go into the groundwater model. I'm going to take a second just to deviate here a little bit because I know many of you are students and professors who may be looking for ways to access these data sets that have been put together because many of them will eventually end up being statewide. And so this summer, the department's launching a new website called Insight. And what Insight stands for, because I can never remember, is Integrated Network of Scientific Information in Geohydrologic Tools. So um, in sometime this summer, this website will be available. And on here, we'll have different things. So we'll have information that's summarized at different levels. Some of it will just be kind of very basic factoid type um, things about each basin. Um, others will be uh, much more on the other end, which is where you can actually access and download the modeling files that were developed and built for each of these. Um, there will also be a map viewer in order to spatially look at some of the things that are mapped in case you don't want to download it and have to map it yourself. But we think this uh, will be a good tool to really increase the accessibility to all the different projects, data sets, and models that were been developing over the past two years and will continue to develop over the next several as well. Um, this is just kind of a mock-up of what one of the, um, not the downloading the modeling files, but what some of the other information might look like. So basic information on each model, um, stream flow or other water use data, um, can be incorporated as well. So just to kind of let people know that that's available, it's out there, um, just not quite yet. All right, so now the future climate change scenario portion. So the portion that the uh, Bureau is really going to provide input on. So again, this is through their Water Smart program, which is just an initiative to really try to provide some different types of technical analysis to other agencies that might not have climate or economic modelers through this. So what the Bureau of Reclamation basically does is they take um, lots of different general circulation models and then through various statistical analyses, they downscale that large global grid down to smaller regional grids of which from there they can pull precipitation and temperature records. And then they apply what they call the ensemble hybrid delta approach. I will explain or attempt to what this means in a minute here. But basically, again, we're just really trying to get those changes in the distributions of precipitation and temperature to really develop that envelope of potential climate variability that's suggested by these general circulation models. So again, they'll take and they'll make some smaller which is still considerably uh, larger than our regional model, but in terms of climate models, it's um, 
quite a bit smaller and regional. And they're really looking for these changes, again, in the precipitation and temperature are the variables that they feel most comfortable pulling out of these models for um, the purposes that we need. All right, so what does hybrid delta mean? So hybrid delta is taking the outputs from these general circulation models and then choosing a chunk of time that it ran, say 20 years onto the future, so say like 2050 tw to 2070, and then comparing that to a recent 20-year period, say like 1990 to 2010, and really looking at the changes between those two um, chunks of time in terms of the magnitude of precipitation and temperature, the timing of when these events occur, the severity, and so really developing all these changes or these deltas. So then they take these deltas and they apply it to the historical record that we have. So however much it changed between that comparison chunk of time, they make and apply those changes to that entire model simulation record. And one of the reasons we do this is because we're more focused on comparing the management options and how well they um, evaluate against each other through these varying climate scenarios and focus much less on what the potential climate scenario actually is. And so this is just a method that the Bureau has developed so that way it really places that emphasis on the comparison of, those eva um, of the different options that are available. Okay, so what does that ensemble part of the ensemble hybrid delta mean? What that really means is that they take all the general circulation models that they're looking at and they plot them up by percent change in precipitation, percent change or temperature change, and then they break it into quadrants. They'll break it into a no change, so where they really consider the outputs that the model has to be pretty insignificant or minor compared to what we see today. And then they'll break it into a um, warmer, wetter, cooler, wetter, warmer, drier, wet, um, cooler, drier. And so then they'll focus on that, the climate models that showed those responses, and they'll aggregate those. And they do that so that way there's not one general circulation model that really skews something in one direction or the other. So they really focus in on what is the consensus of all those models. So it's this ensemble consensus that they take then and they place here into this hybrid approach, hybrid delta approach. And so how we take this in turn is we apply those precipitation um, temperature, which really gets at the ET component changes, and we can apply it back to the groundwater model by affecting how much recharge over the model area is going into the groundwater model. This is just an example of one of the ones that they've done previously. Again, it just shows the different groupings that have resulted from um, the ensemble statistics that they've done. The main point here is just that they can do this on an annual basis, but a lot of times when we have water issues, it's not over the year, it's during those summer months when there's a lot of irrigation present. And so they can also take it then and focus it on an April, May, to September timeframe to really focus on the changes that occur during that time. So that was a incredibly brief 10,000 view look at this um, much more complex process. This is um, a study that the Bureau of Reclamation put out that was done in Oklahoma 
where they outline in detail this process that they've developed and they've used in other areas. And so I just put this up here in case people were curious and more interested in this approach and how it was actually done. All right, so back to this figure. So it's great and it's wonderful, you know, that we can build all these different models and all these different tools, but really they all have to serve a purpose. We have to be able to use them. And we use them within the terms of our planning framework because no matter how sophisticated our modeling techniques, models don't tell us what decisions to make. We make decisions and then we use the models to inform us on our progress towards those decisions. So the first step we really see in, in the adaptive management uh, framework that the department uh, looks at this is identifying the management setting. So first off, it's always, what is it that we want to accomplish? Or what is it that we need to accomplish? Why do we need to do this? And so it's, it sounds pretty basic, but it's pretty fundamental that that purpose of what you're doing and why you're doing it is really laid out at the beginning. So once that process is completed, we can move into what we call assessing the water resources. So really this focuses in on that uh, water inventory. What are our water uses? What are our water demands? Because our use and demands are not always the same. Uh, and what are our water supplies? And so we start to use the models in this part of the process too because we have to uh, use the models to estimate some of these different things we can't always measure directly or we don't always have the data sets available to do that. And so this is the first step where we really start to build and develop these models and tools. So once we develop that water inventory and have started our um, model and tool development, we can move into what we call understanding and predicting the system. So before we set about any types of management, we feel that we really need to know, or um, not know, but have an idea of how we think different perturbations, how different management options might affect the system. And so um, by getting that, you can really start to understand the system dynamics. What I mean by that, it's not focusing on exact numbers, but it's really, um, is something gonna potentially increase here versus decrease there? and getting a feel for those types of dynamics that can occur. From that process and from what we've learned from um, that system dynamics assessment and really looking at that water inventory, we can start to set our management targets. Now these targets need to be clear, they need to be concise, they need to be achievable, and they need to be measurable because a target doesn't do you any good if you can't measure your progress towards it and how we use it. And also, it needs to be something we can achieve. Um, there, are, there are great goals out there, but if we can't achieve it, we really haven't made progress towards something. And these can be put in context of time frames as well as in certain targets you wanna hit near term versus targets that you really wanna hit long term. So once these management targets are set, then we really start to look at the different management options that we can use to start hitting those management targets. Again, we might use the models or tools developed to start getting an idea before we go through what could be expensive um, management options or implementation measures to really get a feel for what might be most effective towards achieving those targets. 
but I'll mention that before you go out and implement any of these options, it's also really good to set up a proper monitoring protocol because you might be making significant impacts, but if you can't measure it, we really can't evaluate our progress towards reaching that target. So from there, and the piece that really fits into that adaptive management framework is that evaluation piece. So we find that it's very good at certain intervals, and sometimes we do this yearly, sometimes at longer time steps, such as five years, to sit back and say, okay, we've acquired all this or amassed all this monitoring data. Where are we actually at in towards achieving those management targets? You know, are we making progress the way we thought we would? Are we running short? And so that's a way to sit back and reevaluate and say, okay, well, maybe we need to make some adjustments. Maybe we do need to make adjustments to the models. Maybe our data needs adjustments. Maybe our options need adjustments. And it's also good to not just to evaluate and assess this in terms of the technical aspects, but it's also important to start looking at it too in terms of the policy or the management setting, because the management setting itself can change. Uh, you might have had sudden population growth that was unanticipated, or a new industry move in, or population growth that was expected to happen that just never came about. And so it's really good to sit back and say, okay, this is what we wanted to do and accomplish 10 years ago, but is this what we still want to accomplish today? And so it's always really important that we we then adapt our models and how we collect data too to make sure that we're always um, accomplishing what it is that we want to do with these. Okay, so just two quick examples of how we actually have been using this technical within this planning framework. One example is the Upper Niagara White. They've been in the planning process for quite some time and they already have an integrated management plan in place. And because of that, we were able to have a lot of discussions with them about how to build their certified acres database so that way it was easier to transition that into information that we could put into our crop sim and our uh, groundwater models. And so it's really through building those types of relationships between different agencies about how you can just make small adjustments to how you collect data, how it can actually be really useful in terms of modeling applications. The Lower Niobrara is um, pursuing an IMP as well. They're not very far along in the process, so we don't actually have a plan finished yet, but they're in the initial stage that we call the stakeholder process. And what I mean by stakeholder is anyone who uses water, so it's pretty much open to anyone to provide input and how they use water, what their water concerns are. And that's really how we get that local input and transparency into identifying what it is that we want to do. So, so um, that's really how we get at identifying the management setting within each district. So uh, now onto the part that the students might be most interested in, internships and assistantships. So internships, the department does advertise internships. These are on an as-needed basis so there's no specific semester or time that these come out. They're really, the department identifies that we have a need or a timeline to meet, and so we need additional help for um, someone to come on and help complete the project. Uh, we typically advertise and seek specific skill sets in order to do this. Uh, the lengths of the internships can vary, and 
Husker Hirelink. That's where we always post those. So if you're interested, check Husker Hirelink. Sorry, I'm getting thirsty here. Now, the assistantships are quite a bit different than the internships. These are really um, a way to find a mutually beneficial research project for the department and the student. So what we've been working for and uh, recently is that it's a project that the department, the advisor, the student will sit down, scope out, and um, ideally it becomes part of the student's thesis or dissertation. It can either be it in its entirety or a chapter that's really up to the student and to the advisor. However, we do focus on some general categories. In the past, people had focused on GIS applications, land use, consumptive water use, but it doesn't have to just focus on the technical aspects either. It can be um, different uh, ways or better methods of planning, better um, scientific education and outreach, ways to engage the public. So really it could be a pretty wide variety of topics. Uh, when those are submitted, we just ask that students provide a short proposal outlining their idea for what type of project they'd like to pursue. And then we meet with the student regularly because um, we're very well aware that you run into all kinds of things you never thought you would, scopes might need to change, be modified. And so we try to really work with the students and the advisor so that way everyone comes up with something that's pretty beneficial. Now again, these occur um, as funding is available, so they may not be available every year, especially if a previous student has an extension on it. But that's again something for people to be aware of, and due to our budget cycle, and when we'll know that we have funding, those internships will be posted in the fall. Or not internships, sorry, assistantships will be posted in the fall. So right now the department has two internship positions available. Um, I would personally appreciate it if you know someone that might be interested passing this along. Those do close this Friday though. And again, they're posted on Husker Hirelink and we have had several different interns in the past. Um, we've previously funded three different assistantships. Two are current at this time as well. So it's not something that we've been doing very regularly, um, or I'm not sure past how often it occurred, but it's something that we wanna try to do to really foster and build that working relationship with the university, give students some experience and exposure to the different types of things that agencies like the department work on or need, and so we, we see there are a lot of benefits to these. All right, thank you very much for your time and again for inviting me here to talk today.
off the river. Well, this, these models aren't to focus on in-stream demands or uh, in-stream flows or what those in-stream flows should be. Really, that comes from other information, other agencies doing studies and research about what those water needs are. What our models really would do then is we would say, okay, we need to maintain flows at such a level. What are the different things that we could do in order to maintain flows at that level? Because what the flows need to be, it needs, it's defined on who's using it. So is it a community that needs a certain amount of water in order to maintain their intakes? Is it a certain fish species that needs a certain flow regime? So those are ways you have to look at things in a different um, context. And again, that's where the purpose of why the model is developed is really, really important. Yep, I just have a question on the geology. Mm -hmm. What kind of layers do you have in your geologic model of the Niagara? Um, that's in the upper basin, basin portion, we have two layers. In the lower basin portion, we have one layer. You mean as in like riparian use yeah, yeah, vegetation? Yes, we we do have that. I'm sorry, off the top of my head, I don't remember what we use to do that. Um, so I can talk to you later about that. Uh, so uh, between those uh, separate models, are you running them on the uh, the same? Um, we will be running them at multiple, but um, we will have to do post-processing between the different models to either aggregate or separate out for the temporal or, uh, for the yeah, temporal scale that we want to use for the next modeling step. How far along are you on uh, to be able, you know, you were, you were discussing how um, really it's other people's inputs that you that you would need to run scenarios to the model, say if you needed to maintain an in-stream flow for a fish or if you needed to maintain a level for a, for a, a town or something like that, uh, a pump intake. How far along are you guys from being able to run scenarios like that with, the, with this model? Well, we're not, this generation really we, um, because we've been working more with the NRD, so it's things that are more related to groundwater pumping or different recharge projects. So what I mean by that is, um, take 2011 when we had all that flooding, if we could divert that water to areas where we know it can seep in at a pretty fast rate, uh, really what benefits that would have when that water would come back to the river, how it could affect groundwater levels, how frequently would we need to do it to really see a benefit, and so really those are the types of scenarios that we're focusing on at this time. Right. But I mean, like, you, it, theoretically it could simulate other scenarios based it, on... It, it can. It's just, I'll put a caveat on that, is again, you know, these models were built for a specific purpose, so we can't do every type of scenario that someone might like to do. And so that's, again, one of the reasons that we make these models readily available is that people can take them and modify them to do their own types of model runs to do that. Because we also, 
because we're a state agency, we can't exceed our authorities in a lot of ways, so we can't do a lot of modeling studies that would focus on things outside of our authorities. Like we can't do a modeling study on water quality and things of that nature. Other questions for Brandy? Uh, one more question. Uh, when you do any evaluation, is there any specific uh, strategy for, for the integrating model? Because there are so many types such as hospital health and student gauge. So uh, just very generally, the approach we take is that we calibrate each model independently, and then we start to run the models and calibrate them in concert. Because municipalities, especially those in the Niagara, are such minor users that their their water use really is not noticeable, especially at the scale that we're modeling. I guess what size is your model grid? They're mile by mile. Thank you very much for an interesting talk.